friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Really happy to be with you this week and also to bring you some great guests. We have a good friend and Vatican expert with us at the end of the hour. His name is Edward Penton and he's with the National Catholic Register. We want to discuss with him the situation in Afghanistan, specifically recent reports that the Holy See has made efforts to convene talks with the Taliban as the situation on the ground there is so dire. Vatican correspondent Edward Penton has the latest on this hopeful news. He also will share with us the latest news regarding Cardinal Raymond Burke, who is sick with COVID, but I think doing better. We'll hear more about that from Edward. First, we turn our attention to the lovely Sisters of Life. They do tremendous work helping women choose life. Sister Mary Grace is with us, alongside our mutual, very good friend, Catherine Jean Lopez of the National Review. She works very closely with the Sisters and Campaigns for Life every day on her feet, on the sidewalks, and also in the National Review and all, all, the, all the great work that she does. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the show, Catherine and Sister Mary Grace. Thank you. Thank you. Such a gift to be here. Sister, yeah. we wanted to take uh, yeah. some time here on, on our show and highlight the, the wonderful work that you and your fellow mm-hmm. sisters do. We wanted to hear about it and um, get our, our listeners interested in it and in, in praying for your Absolutely. work and in, and in knowing more about how the church, uh, all of us being the church, of course, aren't just, we're not just about ideas and, and promoting good yeah. things. As much as that is important, we're also about physically helping with our hands and, and embracing you know, the results yeah. of, a, of a pro-life culture. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one heart at a time, but it's also a, a totally dependent on a, on a on a combined effort. You know, we're all in this together, and that's one of the biggest gifts that we have as Sister of Life is kind of on the front line being able to see people from all different walks of life come together, uh, and that can be sometimes the most supportive and powerful um, assistance we can give anyone is to give them a sense of we being with them, community, and a, and a swell, really a whole groundswell of people uniting to be there for them. There's nothing like human contact. There's nothing like seeing symp- yeah. sympathy in a fellow human being's eyes, an uh-huh. arm, an arm ready to embrace. I think that that's, um, without that, we we can really do no good, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, God has, God has entrusted a particular vision of his, of, his, of his self and his love to every human life. So um, we're all entrusted with this incredible gift, not only to give of ourselves, but really reveal, reveal the face of God and his love and his life to the world and each other. And, and you're right, you, you can't replace a hug. You can't replace looking into someone's eyes and communicating, you know, I'm with you. You're not alone. God is merciful. All those things that we know and believe in our heart really become incarnate when we actually communicate them by word or a smile or, you know, picking someone up for an appointment or just sending them a text or encouraging them that we're there for them. Uh, that human relationship, for sure, it's, it, it, it tells us who God is. He's personal and he's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sister, tell us, give us a thumbnail sketch of the Sisters of Life, who you are, uh, where you are, and, and what's, yeah. what is your mission, your vocation? Absolutely. That's a great question. We, as, as you said, we're the Sisters of Life and we're a Catholic religious community of sisters that in essence believe that every person is good. You know, that every single human life, no matter what we're going through, what we've been through, what we've done or haven't yet done, uh, that we're good. We're inherently sacred. Uh, and each one of us is a is a unique reflection of, of God himself. But, you know, it's easy to say these things in passing or even hear it at church or hear it growing up, but today it can be even more easier to forget or, you know, maybe no one's ever spoken that truth to us. Well, you know, it's something we've kind of taken for granted. But the good news is that God doesn't forget these things about us. You know, he doesn't forget the way he loved us and what he made us for. And his plans are good for us. And we get to see this every day with the women that we get to work with. Uh, we, we do a number of different missions that includes uh, women who are struggling with a pregnancy uh, and helping them really to experience themselves as, as loved and supported, you know, whether that be practical 
spiritual, emotional needs and accompaniment so that they can make a decision in, in freedom, really, and courage and not be bound or set back by fear. Um, we also um, offer weekend retreats for people of all walks of life and at different points in their life just to rest again in, in the truths of who we are and why we're made uh, and rest in, in, in the goodness of, of God's plan for us and that, that He's with us and for us and kind of be restored in those truths on a weekend getaway so that we can re-enter back into our lives based on um, the true reality of our lives as gifts. And we also uh, we do a bunch of other things. We also um, give talks in different um opportunities for evangelization we come and visit places that that want to that want to know the truth and, and delve in it more about their own goodness and, and meaning and purpose in life because it's so easily forgotten today and often the world can tell us you know unless you achieve earn or prove yourself you're only worthy of of, of love and, and respect and that's so not true you know this is this is a gift that each one of us has that we're we're really made in god's image and likeness and we have a profound dignity without doing anything but just simply being ourselves uh, and we also have the great gift of of walking alongside women who have suffered the experience of an abortion um, and see the infinite mercy of God meet them where they are, heal them and restore them to a new life and depth that they often didn't think was imaginable for them before. And so to see new life breathe into to every walk of life is such a gift, gift for us as sisters and, and really gives us as sisters faith to believe and see the wonders of God um, in each human heart as we walk with and accompany people. What a collection of beautiful things that you do, so so needed yeah. in this world that's so atomized, people are so alone and mm-hmm. fragmented. And sister, how many how many of there are you and where are you located? That's a good question. We are we are healthy and growing, which is good. We, um, we're just over about 100. 15 now, around about there, and we're looking forward to um, welcoming, actually, in the house that I serve in here, uh, 10 brave young women that are going to courageously enter our community in, in about a month's time. Amazing. And we're spread out, we're spread out all over the U.S., we're, um, and we're also in Canada. So most of our missions, we were kind of born and raised in New York City. Uh, our founder, Cardinal O'Connor, was a Navy chaplain, uh, and also the Archbishop of New York at the time in 1991, when he uh, really received the inspiration from the Holy Spirit to raise up a community of young women who would essentially lay down their lives for the truth that every good every person is good and to really proclaim that with their lives because it's worthy it's a truth worthy of every person being being yeah, filled with and, and reminded of and, and we need all of us need to hear that every day and, and to be reminded of it in our day and culture um, so it would allow us to grow um, in, the, in the identity of, of who we really are and that is children of God which which really sets us free if there are yeah, any please. listeners if there are any listeners who, who lose hope sometimes about our youth and then mm. they hear you say that you have 10 young women yeah. who are ready oh, to yeah. lay down their lives and, and just serve God yeah. and their fellow man for the rest for the rest yeah. of their lives that's so that's beyond yeah. And that's beyond thrilling, and and it and it fills all of our hearts yeah. with hope. Catherine, when you are very close to the Sisters for Life, every time, almost every time I see you um, at some function or another, yeah. uh, you have one or two of these wonderful ladies with you, sometimes more. And um, <laughs> how did you meet them, and how did you become so so intimate with them? Gracie, you, you um, love the uh, adoption topic, and I actually remember there is there is an event that I did at a Jewish office um, on adoption and we had we had there's a picture this is a great picture where there was one row of yarmulkes and one y- row of veil <laughs> and it was just a beautiful ecumenical coming together in New York I met the sisters um very long time ago um when I was I was doing um pro-life work in in new york city and and the the sisters have always run well have since cardinal o'connor run the respect off of life office in, in the archdiocese of new york um and one of the things that i love the most about the sisters of life first of all there there are pro-life credibility cardinal o'connor said if if there's a woman who needs help from the who's pregnant and needs help come to the Catholic Church, and mm-hmm. and the Sisters of Life are how the church provides having women live with them and and all the other different ministries as Sister Mary Grace outlined, mm-hmm. but they also show us the way to be pro-life. How do you build a culture of life? They really are manifestation of the gospel of life that that um, John Paul II wrote about in in Evangelium Vitae all those many years ago. And um, they show us that you can't 
it's not enough to oppose abortion. It's not enough to want Roe v. Wade overturned. It's not enough to defund Planned Parenthood. We have to love people into life. Mm-hmm. You know, one of um, they have a very popular uh, prayer called the Litany of Trust. And yeah. the beginning of the prayer is from the belief that I have to earn your love. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear that I am unlovable. Deliver me, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Pray this prayer and you realize, first of all, oh, wait, it's it, it must not only be me, you know, mm-hmm. because somebody thought to write a prayer and mass produce it. And, you know, so many of the girls and young women who go into abortion clinics are feeling like they're unlovable, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's in many cases why they're having sex in the first place, you know, um, that, that they could never do this. The sister can tell many, many more stories than I can, but I've seen with my own eyes, girls be in front of Planned Parenthood, then go to the Sisters of Life convent and just be loved. They don't, the first word they say to you is not, don't have an abortion. You know, it's, do you want some tea? You know, you know, they they encounter them as human beings because it's not, it's not hatred of abortion. It's love of the, the poor woman who even begins to contemplate out of that out yeah, of that wretched place exactly. that that her heart is in exactly mm-hmm. what a beautiful focus to put the focus on mm-hmm. on loving that 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 poor so woman the sisters of life really are, are showing us how we can love with an issue you know the abortion issue and assisted suicide and all these threats uh, to innocent human life they really have become so politicized and the sisters <laughs> sort of humanize the issue again by by yeah leading with love which is what we need to do you know Again, pro-lifers, I worry sometimes we, you know, we're busy and there's the temptation to just have your position or maybe just give a donation to the Sisters of Life, which you should absolutely consider doing. Also, do the people in our lives know that it's not judging that we're about. If you are pregnant and it was not planned, we will help you. We will love Mm -hmm. you. We will not judge Mm -hmm. you. I do worry sometimes, even when I'm standing outside an abortion clinic praying the rosary, especially in New York, there's such hostility. I worry that that people think that we're judging as as we're praying, pray for us sinners. You know, I I stand out there penitential that, you know, we haven't been able to love these women better, you know, who deserve so much better than um, walking into an abortion clinic. And, you know, um, and so many of the women that stand outside abortion clinics and pray are themselves hurt by abortion and what they're trying to do, and maybe other people don't understand this, is what they're trying to do is they're trying to keep other women safe from what hurt them because their lives have become in so many ways a misery of regret and self-reproach and you're right I think most of us are activated by love but it how do we make that more present to others like the sisters of life do there's something about your habits and and your veils your set apartness that Mm -hmm. inspires so much trust uh, Sister Mary, and it inspires trust yeah. in the human heart because we can see by the way by the way you dress mm-hmm. that you have yeah. you have made an act of great love, and that you're mm-hmm. and that you are ready to love uh, your your the the people around you with that unconditional love with which you know God loves you. Yeah, yeah, it's powerful. You know, I've only ever experienced the habit to be a bridge to people. Really, mm-hmm. you know, there's something there's something uh, powerful in it that it communicates to someone whether or not we even speak to them directly. But seeing a sister can often, um, you know, like really proclaim the truth that God is with us. You know, He has not forgotten us. Um, he is not distant and far off. He's actually right beside us. He's on the streets. He's walking on the pavements. He's interested in us, invested in us, and um, He's really for us. It's, it's awesome to have the experiences that we do have, even just walking on the streets and people just, really, it helps with conversation. You know, small chat is very limited when you're, when you're wearing, wearing the habit of a sister because people know what you're about and they know that you're there for you inherently most of the time. And that really allows an openness uh, for people to receive the truth that God's, God's with them, you know, and, he, and, he's, and he's not here to judge and set us apart, but he's really here to, to welcome us home and respect our freedom and, and give us an opportunity to live for something more than ourselves, to, to have a hope that there might be something more than just what we see visibly with our eyes. You know, that 
that there's a deeper meaning and, and a, a journey that we're all on. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christian. We're talking to Catherine Jean Lopez of the National Review and also to Sister Mary Grace of the Sisters of Life, a growing, beautiful uh, order of nuns that devotes themselves in in a large part to to showing the um, to showing the face of love. So, Sister, what? How did you find your vocation to the Sisters of Life? That's a great question. God really found me. <laughs> I didn't. I definitely didn't grow up dreaming this would be uh, a natural consequence in my life. Uh, I grew up in the beach, uh, Sydney side in, in Australia, and you know I never even met a sister growing up, so it was never on the horizon. Uh, but but God has a, a plan for each one of us, and He knows exactly the right time uh, to invite us uh, and to draw us closer to Himself. I was actually my first year out in high school, and there was a big Catholic event that came to Sydney, Australia, called World Youth Day. And uh, this, and it's kind of it's one of these big events where really hundreds of thousands of Catholics descend upon one country. Uh, it's incredible and inspiring. Uh, but it wasn't in the big events that I really experienced the possibility of a vocation. And that was actually when I met the sisters at just a small event during this World Youth Day event. And I remember the first time I met the sisters, I was honestly just really taken aback by them. They were real. They were joyful. Uh, and they were actually women deeply in love with someone. You know, and I'd grown up Catholic my whole life, uh, and it was definitely, you know, it, it was a devotional faith. Like, I loved it. You know, I went, we went to Mass on Sundays. We prayed the rosary when we could. But it wasn't until I met the sisters that I really was awakened to the reality that Christianity is falling in love with the God who loved us first. Uh, and I saw that in these sisters. They embodied it. Uh, and that really kind of sparked a journey for myself to really just search for this God that was personal and real and actually made a difference in people's lives. And so I just pursued the sisters and, and kind of kept in touch with them for a couple of years. But I also went on to study and get a degree in theology and, and really honestly just wanted to spend the rest of my life either competing in, in sports or organizing sports events. That was kind of my, my world dream to make the Olympics one day. That I thought I'd be pretty happy with that. Uh, but, you know, the more I searched and pursued that path, the more I could notice a restlessness in my heart that actually aches for more. And every time I thought of the more, I kept thinking about the way these sisters were living with love and life. And, and I wanted more of that. Um, and so eventually I, uh, I gave in and I made a, um, a secret trip to the U.S. and visited the sisters in the convent here in New York City. And I was, uh, and, you know, I, I, at that point I still didn't know what God wanted. Uh, but I realized that, you know, I had to ask God, what did he want for my life? What was his plan for me? Um, and waiting in the silence, he really spoke to my heart, you know, in a very simple but real way that we know when truth is spoken to us, uh, that he wanted me for himself. Being asked uh, that question of, would you would you follow me with your whole heart? My heart really had a response of its own that I wanted to, to follow him with everything. And so I went home and, and began to slowly pack up my life. And I've made the big trip across from Sydney to New York. And it's now been eight years that I've been a sister of life. And I'm constantly surprised by how much more Christ is constantly offering those who pursue him um, and how much he respects our freedom and really just wants us to be happy. <laughs> how delightful, sister. What a beautiful vocation yeah. story. And, and there's you. so much there's so much certainty in it. I guess when it's like falling in, well, it's, yeah. in, it's like any kind of falling in love, right? Your eyes your eyes become full of that, that one person and that's all you can see and you, you make it happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. And without a doubt, there were challenges almost every step of the way and there still are, you know, but um, the beautiful thing about about the struggles, you know, leaving home and, and daring to believe that God's plan for me is the best plan, like all those those things that we all struggle with, you know, is is God really for me? And bringing them to Him um, and allowing Him the space to, to respond and speak to us has allowed me to uh, really see how God will take care of everything in His time and His way. We might not always see immediately what He's doing or why, but He definitely gives us the grace at every point. And over time, sometimes He allows us to see what He was doing. And a lot of the times He invites us to trust Him in the mystery that he's always for us and he's always going to make something good and beautiful um, out of pursuing him and, and following him and trusting that he's, he's going to be there. And sister, were you always pro-life yeah. or is that, is that, was that something that, um, of course you believed, but maybe you weren't so invested in it before you became a sister of life? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, I really was convicted, actually, when I was in high school. And I remember this, um, I would have been about 16 years old, and we were asked in one of our religion classes to, to choose any 
kind of human rights movement in the world and then go and do a research topic on it. And I remember looking through all the sufferings of humanity, you know, and, and looking across, you know, all the different ways the human person is, is attacked or suffering or lacking. And for some reason at that age when I was 16, when I read about the reality of abortion and the vulnerability, not only of these, these children that, that haven't been given the chance to live, but also these women that find themselves in, in situations where they feel like they don't have the support they need or they're, they're left alone, shattered my 16-year-old heart. And I thought, oh my goodness, how can we, how can we, how can we let this happen? And what, what more can we do to, to let these children see life and to allow these young women and women of all ages to, to experience um, the gift of other women being there for them? And I experienced that in my own life of, of times when I've struggled or um, had low moments or really struggled through life. It's when women have come together and, and stood by each other that has been one of the most liberating and powerful experiences. And, um, and, and I wanted that for other women that were my age, other young girls that were going through potentially an experience like that to know that, that women standing by women is powerful and that it can set us all free. Hmm. It would be wonderful if, if our whole culture reflected that kind of, of solidarity, mm-hmm. solidarity with babies, solidarity yeah. with women, solidarity yeah. with the family. And yeah. Catherine, you wrote a piece, uh, a really fabulous piece in National Review, and, and you connected some dots for us. Later on in the show, we'll be talking to Ed Penton, Edward Penton, about the, the terrible situation in Afghanistan. And you connected for us, Catherine, how we, f- and this is the name of the, the title of the piece, we fail to value life in Afghanistan as at home. I think you really, uh, again, connected the dots <laughs> as to how a disdain, a disdain for the most basic respect that, that we have as human beings, that solidarity for each other, the, the idea that all human beings are somehow valuable, um, is missing in in, in our culture and abortion here and also in, in these terrible scenes we're seeing in Afghanistan. Yeah, if you go back and read Humanity Vitae, Paul VI told us all of this would happen. So mm-hmm. much of what we're looking at in the in the world today. Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is, like, he talked about how with the introduction of artificial contraception, you're ultimately pitting man, man against woman, you know? Mm-hmm. And, of course, with abortion, mother against child. And so, if that most fundamental bond is broken, of course we're going to have so many different kinds of violence. I would even go so far, I mean, the, the, the violence that we tolerate in, on, in TV and music, it's just, it all, I believe, goes back to abortion and the fact that we look away from it, we pretend it's healthcare, we pretend it's uh, women's empowerment. It's miserable. And the more you spend time near abortion clinics, talking with women who are going in, who are so scared or so hardened because they've been hurt so much, it makes everything else make sense. You know, um, there's there's this poison in our bloodstream and it's not going to get better until we reject abortion. That's not just overturning Roe, like we were saying before. It means really living the kinds of things that Sister Mary Grace has been talking about. I would recommend everybody, everybody who's just sort of shocked watching what's happening in Afghanistan or was shocked by the violence last summer, I'll go back and read Evangelium Vitae, you know, the the gospel of life really shows us how we can live differently. And it's um, it's an opportunity offered to us. I think to some extent we've missed the boat. And, um, and the existence of the Sisters of Life shows us what's possible if we really take up that, that rallying cry that John Paul II issued and that Cardinal O'Connor was so much a part of in, in founding um, the Sisters of Life. It is just all one garment, isn't it? One beautifully woven garment. You choose life... As- at the beginning, at conception, you choose life at the end. When people are, are elderly and vulnerable and sick, you choose life. If you keep consistently choosing life, then our world becomes a world of peace and mutual respect. And you're right; it's a poison in our blood because we've made, a, you know, in our, you know, in our country and our culture, we've made a fundamental choice to choose death to choose death in order mm-hmm. to liberate ourselves sexually, although I always think, you know, we're really liberating unscrupulous men <laughs> more than anyone else. <laughs> but it really, it really does become a kind of enslavement. I, I don't listen to a lot of pop music anymore, but I, I recently heard a Rihanna song, a, uh, a Rihanna song that w- it was called Rude Boy. And it was so clear that the message was women use men or they're going to use you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just it was it was such a misery to hear and but it 
it, yeah, this is this is what I'm seeing outside abortion clinics and in the streets of, of Manhattan. And um, girls deserve better than this, you know. And the the men need to know that that there's more to life than this. And uh, th- I also want to mention, Gracie. I just want to plug the Sisters of Life website. Um, you, you know, you can get a, a nice, um, deeper introduction um, into the sisters and their life and their ministry there, and, and some of the you know op- uh, opportunities that um, that you can you can uh, avail yourselves of, like the t- retreats. Um, there's also a, a quarterly called Imprint that you can subscribe to for free, um, which is really a beautiful, beautiful little magazine. And th- I mentioned this, the Litany of Trust prayer. You can order some on the website. There's some other things. There's a beautiful children's book. Um, and there's also just out in the last week or so, there's actually a new Litany of Trust retreat book that you can get from Emmaus Press. And um, I highly recommend it. It's all, they're all tools to help you live the charism of the Sisters of Life, which is ultimately what we are called to as Christians in the world today. And what is the yeah. name of, how do we reach that website, Sister? It's sistersoflife.org. So it's www.sistersoflife.org. And the good news too, like gosh, as we talk about this and even even see that the troubles and the chaos that that I think even as, as, as Catholics we can sometimes see even more. You know, it's like we can see the mess all the more, which can be a burden. But, you know, the surprising and, and good news that, that Jesus Christ has given us is that there's nothing bigger than the love and mercy of God. That in in the midst of all the darkness and chaos and confusion, you know, Jesus Christ has the answers. And, you know, we're a seeking humanity that is, is desperate to know who we are. And we need to be reminded of those truths. But to be relieved to know that, that Christ is, he has won this battle for us and he, he alone can reveal each one of us to ourselves, you know, who we are as gift and and known by him and chosen to know life and you know i can i can never hear enough uh, the truth of god's mercy that you know mm-hmm. even at the times when you know all of us don't choose life you know whether whether we were not free to or, or we just made bad decisions that um that god's that god's mercy goes even there and that um you know our histories and even the ways that we've failed or struggle at the moment don't define us it's the love of god and his plan for us which is a fullness of life which is healing which is freedom so we never need to be afraid to to really to really seek the lord and and let him define us with his love and life well sister mary grace you you inspire us and fill us with hope and and also with the knowledge of god's mercy which is really the only thing we need to know in the end and uh sister so that was sistersoflife.org and please be assured of our prayers and if we would like to support your organization, would that be the right place to go also? Yes, absolutely. You go to our website. That's so kind of you. We will certainly be going there. Thank you very much. And I thank, thank you, Catherine, also for being here with us today. And, thank and for you your for great... highlighting the work of the sisters. It's really a great mercy that we have them in the world today. Thank, thank you, you both. We're it together. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're happy to introduce Edward Penton back to the show. He's a Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Register. He broke some very interesting news this week regarding the Holy See making efforts to hold talks with the Taliban in an effort to quell the catastrophic situation on the ground. Welcome to the show, Edward. Thanks, good to be with you. It's great to have you on again. It's always wonderful to get your perspective from over in Rome, where you have your, you have your finger on the pulse of things going on at the Vatican. We're very curious here as to how the Vatican is reacting to this terrible catastrophe that is happening right now in Afghanistan. The videos and the images coming out of that beleaguered country are so sad and so shocking. He wrote a wonderful piece in the National Catholic Register about the Holy See reportedly pressing for talks with the Taliban to avert a humanitarian catastrophe. That's right, yes. I mean, it's not been confirmed. I, I was unable to get confirmation from the Vatican. Unfortunately, during all this, uh, a lot of the staff go away for the month for, for the summer holiday. But um, but it does seem to be the, the, the Holy See's position that they're trying to open up 
talks, at least between uh, the Taliban and uh, regional political leaders such as Turkey and bring in Western nations as well in order to avert a humanitarian catastrophe over there and to try to create a humanitarian corridor. The allegations that they actually have open channels with the Taliban in order to do, to do this. Uh, there was a letter written by a well-known veteran Italian journalist and lobbyist here called uh, Luigi Vitignani who who said that, in fact, these channels have been opened a confidential channel by the Holy See in order to create this sort of fully functioning humanitarian corridor. But there's nothing really to confirm that. But what we do know is that the Vatican has been putting out um, quite a lot of messages, uh, but first of all, by the Pope and his, his appeal at the Angelus um, 200 years ago, and also by the, an editorial in L'Osservatore Romano, the, the Vatican newspaper, which called for the need to negotiate with the Taliban in order to create such a corridor. So, so that seems to be their, their approach, and they uh, and it's not unusual for the Vatican to, to do this and to sort of weigh in on, on the humanitarian concerns of a crisis like this. So their main their main uh, thrust of, of what they're hoping to achieve is, is a way to get the people who are in, in terrible danger from the Taliban, the religious minorities, people who participating with the non-Taliban government, the Afghan government, with the with, with the outside mm-hmm. with the outside people like the United States, to give those people a way out? Or are they hoping that talks with the Taliban will help the Taliban be less uh, remorseless in their in their attitude towards their enemies? Well I think that's the latter certainly Gratia. Yeah, I think they want to they think they can perhaps get the the, the Taliban to dialogue in order to create this humanitarian uh, corridor. And what we hear now though of course is that the Taliban are They've made up their mind that they're not going to extend this August 31st deadline mm-hmm. to get the evacuees out. And so the time is of the essence and, and the, the, the emergency is increasing. So I think the Vatican is, is keen to weigh in on that and to try to, to help do its bit. Uh, the Pope, he said in his Angela's address that he needed the, the, the importance of dialogue. He often stresses the importance of dialogue. And he hoped that, the, as he put it, the din of weapons ends and the solutions can be found without a table of dialogue. So that seems to be their position. I, I, I think it's, um, from what I've seen from, from some of the commentary, it's, it's going to be very difficult to get the Taliban to do this. I think they made up their mind and they say, I saw today that they said, well, if you, you Western nation can take out those who you think um, eligible to be, to be migrants and to immigrate into your countries, but after the 31st, that window of opportunity will close. And so, uh, as I say, I think it, it is becoming quite a, a serious emergency over there now. So the religious minorities who have been living in Afghanistan and see, are seeing the country take over by the Taliban today, here we hear um, sometimes, oh, the Taliban has changed, there's a new Taliban. <laughs> Do you think that they have any reason to believe that the Taliban has changed, that they're going to be treated with any kind of compassion or pity? I don't think so, Gretchen. I think I think the concern is that, in fact, they might be even more of a ragtag, rather barbaric bunch, and that, I think that's that's the feeling that I think um, there is over there. I spoke briefly with the only Catholic missionary out there, uh, the Barnabite father, um, Giovanni Scalese, who's uh, an Italian who's been out there for... For I think over a decade or more, and he was very concerned. He didn't really want to say anything, but he did say that it's a very difficult moment. He didn't predict. I read an interview which I put in the piece uh, that he did, he gave it to earlier this year, expecting that the, the Afghan government would stay and that the, there would be some sort of power sharing agreement with the Taliban. But but that hasn't happened. Of course, the Afghan government has fallen, and so it's it really is a, a serious and precarious situation, especially for for the Christians there and the religious minorities. As you say, there there are only I think an estimated 10,000 Christians out of a population of 27 million, and of those, there's only about 200 uh, Catholics there, apparently in a census registration there in 2018. And so, so they're very few, but they, they're obviously a, a minority and obviously very, expect, very, very scared and, and apprehensive about the whole situation. So yes, it, it is a great concern for the, for the Christian minority there. That sounds terrifying when I think about it. Yes. And of course, there, there's been these stories, uh, I put in the piece, that they're going around to Christians' houses and accusing them of being spies and, and what watching them, watching the underground churches and so forth. That's been done in the past, and that was actually happened 10 years ago or 11 years ago as well. So there's sort of precedent there. There's a certain persecution, of course, in Afghanistan. But uh, Father Scalazio said, you know, one thing I can tell you is to pray for us, and I think that's the appeal that uh, they would all say, I expect. Yeah, we definitely have to pray for them. What a terrible uh, fate 
to be sitting there and just waiting to see what happens at the hands of, of the Taliban yeah. for them. Well, for so many, right? Whether they're people who co- collaborated with the with the U.S. and other countries or, or helped the other, the, the real Afghan government. And you quoted from the, the Vatican newspaper, L'Osservatore Romano, mm-hmm. that the Vatican accused nations, and I'm quoting, who had a responsible role in Afghanistan of not foreseeing such an emergency, saying it was surprising such a scenario was not envisaged, or worse, that nations were aware of such a probable crisis and nothing was done to avoid it. That's a pretty strong statement, I think, of laying, pointing blame, pointing fingers, laying blame mm-hmm. um, as to the way that yeah. this uh, p- this withdrawal has been handled. Indeed, yes. I mean, they didn't name uh, the Biden administration or any, any government by, by name, but they did say that. And there's obviously great concern that they said that, you know, there hasn't been much foresight in all of this. There hasn't been much preparation and that they should have envisioned this. And if they, as you say, if they if they knew that it's going to happen and still didn't do anything to avoid it, well, that's even worse. And they say, they say there's a responsibility for the Western nations, particularly the U.S., to to ensure that there is this humanitarian corridor and that there is that these people can get out in time. So that's very much their line, yeah. So that, that editorial in, in L'Osservatore was headlined, The Responsibility to Welcome the Tragedy of Fleeing Afghans. And that has always been the, the attitude of the Vatican over the many years of a refugee crisis that uh, has been going on for so many different reasons from in the Middle East and, and migrants fleeing their own countries and many of them ending up in Europe. Pope mm-hmm. Francis has always stressed that uh, that that we that the West has the responsibility to welcome those fleeing. Is there any appetite or, or in fact, any capacity for a- accepting many more millions of, of fleeing uh, Middle Easterners into first Turkey and then, of course, mm. Europe? What do you think about that? Yes, well, I think I think the Vatican has actually said, uh, and I can't remember where exactly, but I think there's a there was appeal that the regional governments like Turkey, like those surrounding Afghanistan, accept these refugees, and that they they have the most. They should just, they should really try there first, and then if the Western nations can take them, that's good too. But it, it's really a regional responsibility of regional governments to help these refugees. Uh, there are already um, many in, in some of the neighboring countries. They've been fleeing uh, over the past uh, year, I believe. So um, there are already refugee camps set up in the neighboring countries. And so I think um, they feel that they should that they have a responsibility to take them first of all. But, uh, but yeah, the Vatican does often appeal to this need to take refugees. And uh, I think that the, the debate is whether they should be restricted in some way or they should just be in a sort of open door policy, and uh, I think the um, the Vatican leans more to the latter, I believe. But uh, but it's not um, it's not totally against sort of a restricted policy. I'm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're speaking to Edward Penton. Edward, um, the there is uh, I wonder how that sits with a country like Turkey that already has so many refugees to be told um, by Western powers that created the, this horrible catastrophe in Afghanistan and this sudden wave of migrants, how it sits with them to be told that they should be the ones to absorb them and not the richer West. Yes, well, I know that um, I read that the president, President Erdogan of Turkey, has actually said, you know, they don't want to become uh, again a, a sort of refugee deposit for the, for the Western for for the West's problems and the West's guilt, really. And so they're they're reluctant to take uh, these refugees. But that's why I think the Vatican would like him as a kind of intermediary between the Taliban and Western nations to help try to kind come to some sort of solution which is acceptable to them and to and to all of the different uh, governments in the region uh, and the West too. So so I think that's the reasoning behind that. And um, But it's it's really not clear what the, or the extent of the um, the communications are between uh, all of these different parties with the Vatican. But uh, but it's something that they've done before. And in fact, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, this is one of his great, um, one of the things that he's, he, he's concern most about and what she thinks the Vatican can do most of, most about too and be most effective, which is mediating these kind of situations and to try to be a sort of neutral party and, and the, the, the different parties in the region can can use the good offices of the Vatican. And so that's that's how Cardinal Paranin has looked at things in the past. And um, there are various examples of him doing that uh, in Venezuela is one of them. But um, also before he was Secretary of State, he, he did this too. So it's um, so it's it's something that the Vatican has got more interested in this, during this pontificate, certainly. And I think they can really make a difference in, those, in that regard and to bring uh, and to help mediate conflicts like this. And Ed, what about the issue of legitimizing the regime by, by recognizing it? 
that's always a very complicated issue for any country that has an oppressive regime. How do you think this is going to play out with Afghanistan? Yes, I mean, it's hard to say. And um, I don't, um, I, as I say, I wasn't able to talk much with the missionary over there, so it's hard to, to get an idea on the ground. But certainly, from what I've read, I think there is, it's going to be difficult in order to stop the, the Taliban becoming over, you know, oppressive and going back to their old ways. I think because there'll be no troops left there, there'll be no allies, no, no NATO forces there, It'll be very difficult to uh, control and check the Taliban and ensure that all the all the developments and advantages that they've achieved over the last 20 years will, will remain. So I think it's going to be difficult to do that. Um, so this is why it really is, as many people are saying, a catastrophe, and it, it's really undoing all the work of the past 20 years um, to try to to bring uh, Afghanistan really into the into the modern world, or at least um, bring it away from from what many say is sort of dark ages of the Taliban. And also, there's also this uh, terrible risk of terrorism, uh, the whole country becoming um, a breeding ground for attacks against the West. Yes, this is another aspect which aid to the touch to need has raised, which is that um, their concern that the there are now much more radical groups in Afghanistan than there were before, and that you've now got ISIS and Al Qaeda, and you've also got growing uh, groups of, of Islamists who are who aren't even belonging to them. There are other new groups uh, sprouting up over there. So yeah, they're very concerned about that, and obviously for the Christians there, that uh, has a uh, is very ominous for them too. Um, and the fact that, that, as they point out, the fact that uh, governments have withdrawn their embassies, they're no longer even represented there. There's no again, there's no real check on what the Taliban does, and so it's very difficult um, for those minorities to be protected. And especially when you've got a growing Islamist population, uh, which is what they predict will happen in the absence of these international observers and uh, Western presence there. So this is just a, a, a total catastrophe for human rights in Afghanistan. It could be something that would mushroom into terrorism against the West. What what can the yeah. what, what more so that you think the Vatican is doing what the Vatican can do best and uh, establishing relations and and hopefully channels to to get the right people out the people that need to leave? Yes. yes, I mean, that's what they're hoping. Unfortunately, there isn't a, a Vatican embassy in Afghanistan. There is one in Pakistan, but there isn't a, um, a nuncia in Afghanistan. And so they don't have any representation there, but they do have lots of contacts, of course, in the diplomatic world across the world. And so they can use those to, to sort of leverage uh, a, a better position, perhaps some bargaining positions so that the, the people do uh, get a better deal through uh, discussing these things with the Taliban. But, um, but yeah, that is, that is what the Vatican can do. And as I say, under Calvin Carolyn, that's something that they've, they've tried to do. Obviously, Calvin Carolyn has a bit of a checkered record with, with China and so forth. But on this, in this sort of area, this is his strength. And I think I expect he's certainly trying to, to get the Vatican to play a constructive role in all of this. So this is a Vatican intervening sort of on a grand scale in a very uh, in a very big uh, world event, isn't it? And but the Vatican has a history yeah. of doing this. It does. Um, yeah, there've been various um, achievements that the Vatican has made, uh, particularly there was one in, in South America in um, in between Chile and Argentina back in nineteen, I think, uh, the early eighties, where they actually did prevent a war between Chile and Argentina. So the, the Vatican has been effective in the past. Um, that was under John Paul II, of course. But yes, this is something that they can do. Uh, it's still very much, I mean, this is not being properly confirmed yet, but I mean, it does seem to be that that's what the Vatican will be doing, certainly trying to to bring parties together, even if they don't achieve that. Um, but uh, but certainly from this uh, letter written by by this Italian journalist, the, the Italians, um, or certainly this Italian in particular, was very happy about it because he, say, he thinks that it could help prevent um, these Islamists coming over to Europe and causing uh, attacks again um, if there can be some sort of dialogue with the Taliban. But that that could be a bit of a, uh, a, a false hope. But who, who knows? It's, it's certainly worth trying. I think that's that's the attitude. Well, it's certainly worth praying for, for that and the and the safety of, of all the poor people that are, I'm sure, cowering in place and, and just desperately wondering what's going to happen next mm-hmm. as they're stuck in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And um, Ed, b- before yeah. we have to break off, I wanted to ask you about a good friend of yours um, that uh, we love in the show is Cardinal Burke and that many of us are praying oh, yeah. for. What do you hear about his state of health? Yes, well, I understand he's... he's um He's got much better. Um, 
well, he's certainly making improvements. Uh, I, I believe that he's now back in his ho- hospital room, having been in the ICU. So he's he's recovering there. I think it, it's going to take quite a while for him to get back to to speed. I think it hit him obviously pretty hard, and it was getting very serious. And now he's, but I do understand it really was quite a miracle that he pulled through and that he is now better. And it's, I think one of the most interesting aspects to this too is that he recovered. Um, over the Marian feast, of course, he, he took turns for the worst after the assumption. But then he was, um, he was, you know, he basically recovered um, or got out of the, the danger zone um, on the eve of the feast of the Immaculate Heart in the traditional rite. So that was, I think, um, a very nice sort of uh, uh, conclusion to this, and uh, certainly it was a fruit of a lot of prayer, a lot of people praying. Well, we have to keep praying for him because I'm sure until he's right back up on his feet, um, he needs our prayers to make sure he gets back out into the world where we need him. We need him in the church. We need Cardinal Burke (laughs) and all the good, all the good, uh, the people in the church that bring us so much hope and so much, um, so much, uh, just that faith that, that things are going to be okay, that the bark of Peter will keep sailing on and, and and take us all to heaven. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, Ed, yeah. thank you, Edward. And, uh, thank you very much for your time. It's always such a joy to sure chat thing. with you, and we're grateful for your thorough thank analysis you. and reporting, especially on this case of Afghanistan. Please check out his work uh, at the National Catholic Register. That's ncregister.com. Thank you, Edward. Thanks, Katya. Great to meet you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when after several weeks of focusing on Jesus' words to us in St. John's Gospel about Jesus' self-gift of himself in the Holy Eucharist, we return to St. Mark's Gospel, where Jesus will speak to us about the type of homage he's asking of us. It's a dramatic scene in which Jesus and his followers are criticized by the Pharisees for not obsessing about the ritual hand-washing traditionally done by Jews at the time before a meal. Jesus, the truth incarnate, responds with force and clarity. He calls the Pharisees hypocrites and cites the prophet Isaiah against them, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines human precepts. And then Jesus tells the Pharisees, You disregard God's commandments, but cling to human tradition. Jesus' words that the Pharisees were only seeming to serve the Lord, while their hearts and actions were doing otherwise, would have come as a great shock to them and to all those who were listening. The Pharisees were considered extraordinarily faithful Jews. They went to the synagogue every Saturday. They prayed at least three times a day. They fasted twice a week, rather than just once a year, as other Jews did on the Day of Atonement. They paid tithes in their whole income, rather than just on the things explicitly mentioned in the Mosaic Law. They used to walk to the temple a few times a year to celebrate the major Jewish feasts, like Passover at the temple. They washed before every meal. They ate only kosher meat. They wore special clothes. And yet in all of this, Jesus says remarkably, This people pays me lip service, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus was right. The people who did all of these religious deeds were also the ones who ended up conspiring to kill Jesus, working together with their arch enemies, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Romans, to have Jesus arrested, tortured, and ultimately crucified. Their hearts were indeed far from God. They were in fact not authentically religious at all, because in their hearts they were murderers instead of worshippers. But they thought they were exemplary believers because of the way they scrupulously adhered to their human traditions above God's clear commandments. St. Mark describes this weekend the complicated and rigorous practice of Jewish ceremonial washings, something that God hadn't revealed that he wanted done, but something that the scribes in the 4th and 5th centuries before Christ had developed to foster what they called ritual purity. It's key for us to grasp what they were doing, because not only does it help us to understand the gospel, but that tendency in human beings to substitute their 
man-made religious practices over what God in fact has himself commanded. The Jews needed to wash their hands in two directions, with one and a half eggshells of clean water. They first went from the tip fingertips down to the palms of their hands, and then they flipped their hands over and went from the bottom of their hands toward their fingertips with another one and a half eggshells of clean water. They would then make fists and try to dry the water off their hands, making sure that they would only use the outside of their fists in order to dry the wet parts of their hand. This was the religious practice they obsessed about. And if, as if these collectively neurotic hygienic washings of hands, cups, jugs, kettles, and beds were what kept people in God's image and helped them to live in love with each other. In response to their challenge, Jesus summoned the crowd and taught them about the purity God himself wants. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus praised the pure of heart, saying, They shall see God, and reminded us where your heart is, there will your treasure be. Jesus had come into the world not to show us how to wash our hands, but to give us a heart transplant, to take out our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, cleansing us so that we might receive within the love of God, treasure it with gratitude, and then love God and love others as God has loved us first. So Jesus says to all those assembled, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that enters someone from the outside can defile that person, but the things that come out from within are what defile. Jesus emphasized that nothing coming from the outside, either touching a jug or a ritually impure person, or even anything we eat, can make us impure in God's sight. The purity that God cares about, Jesus said, is what comes from the heart. The heart is the real core of the person, pointing to what we love and desire. It's what's in the heart, in the actions that flow from the heart, that renders a person pure or impure, holy or sinful, Jesus says. He states that it is from the heart, from what we desire, that sins like, he enumerates, evil thoughts, unchastity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, licentiousness, envy, blasphemy, arrogance, and folly all come. These evil desires, he says, are what make us impure. And we see several of these evil desires, especially malice, deceit, envy, arrogance, and murderous thoughts on evident display in the actions of the Pharisees. Jesus wants all of us to hear him and understand the truth he is describing. He wants this conversation with the Pharisees to be consequential in the way you and I understand our faith and live it. So we need to ask, am I a hypocrite like the Pharisees? Or do I live the faith with integrity? Do I cling to human traditions as a substitute for authentically clinging to God? What is the true treasure of my heart? In the core of my being, do I desire chastity? Or do I want to have my lusts fulfilled? Do I live with spiritual poverty or give in to greed and envy? Am I faithful to God, to my spouse, and to others? Or am I adulterous and betray them? Do I desire the good of others or wish them evil? Do I desire to praise God with my life? Or am I comfortable with blasphemy just because so many others are doing so with their words and lifestyle? Am I humble or arrogant? Do I desire divine wisdom by studying scripture, the catechism, and the doctors of the church, and growing in the spirit of prayer? Or do I practically desire the folly of worldly ideas? There are many today who try to substitute human traditions for God's commands. They substitute football stadiums for churches on Sunday. They cling to liturgical practices more than they do to God and the sacraments. They substitute woke or politically correct ideas on human sexuality, gender, sex, marriage, and family for what God has revealed. They supplant the commandment not to kill, to permit the destruction of human life in the womb or in hospitals and nursing homes. They replace God's command to love our neighbor as ourselves with justifications for treating migrants and refugees like those now fleeing Afghanistan or the poor and needy or those of other races or religions with hardened hearts. We can multiply the examples. But the point of the gospel is not to become like the Pharisee in obsessing about how others are living, rather than examining deeply our own hearts. It's to make a commitment to ensure our hearts are as clean as the Pharisees wanted their hands to be. It's to honor God with both our lips and our hearts. It's to cling to his teaching in all its beauty and fullness. It's to take advantage of the sacrament of confession in which God power washes our insides. 
It's to ensure that we place our treasure in the things of God and seek the opposite of what Jesus condemns. It means we commit to chastity, to generosity, self-sacrifice, faithful love, goodness, truthfulness, integrity, happiness when others are blessed, praise of God and others, humility, and true wisdom. It's to respond to Jesus who says, Hear me, all of you, and understand with great attention, comprehension, and action. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 